My challenge to everybody in this room, if you haven't already done it, is get off the hamster wheel that you're on for long enough, ask the tough questions about why the hell are you doing this? What do you want to really do at the end of the day? What do you want to spend your time on? And then follow that. Welcome to a very special episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast recorded live at the 2022 Game Changer Summit on the field of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. I think the consistency is important, but I think the passion piece has got to be there to reach a a certain level. And if it's not there, it's just about money, it's just about that, it's just not going to feel right. I'm Jessica Mogul, Head of Coaching Strategy at Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. Alongside Michael Mogul, we've built this business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to Michael's name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, we sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I'm taking over today's episode featuring our conversation with America's preeminent trucking attorney, Joe Freed, the corporate serial killer, John Ustall, leader of the nation's largest female-founded law firm, Jan Dills, and elite celebrity divorce attorney, Laura Wasser. There's always ways to grow and change and change your practice and change what it does for you. I think that then helps you better serve your clients and it makes you not only a better attorney, but a better person. That's what's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Welcome, welcome. I am very honored to be up here with these amazing legal leaders. As you know, they all basically, their names precede them and they're incredible and they have all built a brand really in very niche industries. And that's kind of what we're going to just kick off and talk about today. And so the first thing I really want to ask actually all of you is, was there kind of like a a catalyst moment that you feel like you were able to like niche and become your brand? And we'll just start with you, Joe. Joe. I have always felt that I needed to be a subject matter expert in addition to being a good lawyer. Right. And so I've had kind of distinct careers where I have, um, I I first handled medical malpractice cases, but not really. I handled birth trauma cases. And then I handled um, product liability cases, but not really. I handled a Think the Pinto case, a rear impact fire case. And then I started doing trucking. And so for me, that's what it's been about. You know, it's born out of you know, frankly, senses of insecurity um, and feeling like if I was going to be able to be something that was meaningful, be able to do something meaningful in the world, that's the way I had to niche the world down so that I could do that. Love that. And Laura, you are the A-list celebrity known divorce attorney. And so how did that brand come about? And was that something that you know there was like a pivotal moment? No, that's kind of an unseemly brand to have, I think. And I've always... (laughs) At our firm, we've always tried to keep a low profile because kind of benefiting off of the most miserable time in a client's life doesn't always seem to be the way to go. It wasn't until we started the online divorce platform that we really started building a brand because that was when I was willing to come out and say, hey, there's a better way of doing this. And that when you're actually helping people, that's a little bit more 
um, of a positive way to kind of promote yourself and your firm, I think. Love that. And John, you probably have one of the most interesting monikers here. <laughs> so how were you able to niche down and to really be called the corporate serial killer? Well, I'm not sure that's what I'm known as. That's what I'd like to be known as. Um, I remember uh, actually the first trial I was in when I was a young lawyer, when I working on the case before the trial, when I saw a document where the company was weighing whether they would fix a defect or not, and they were the only discussion was numbers, how much it would cost to pay for people dying and burning alive, you know, horrible deaths, or fix the defect. And it took me a while to get to work on those cases more and, and to get them on my own, but I knew then, you know, that could be like a, a good life, you know, changing yeah. the math so that it was more expensive to let people burn to death than to fix a defect. Right. And Jan, you are probably the largest uh, female-founded attorney and law firm, and it's massive. And so do you think there was ever a pivotal moment that really defined that brand? Well, it, over time, it just developed. But I think what it was a catalyst for the brand was when the slogan jingle was created back when that really wasn't a thing. Um, so in 2000, 2001, and we won't take no for an answer, kind of took a, a life of its own and really I, I believe was the catalyst for the brand. Yeah, and you actually were a very early adopter for just marketing in general. So anyone who's very hesitant about marketing, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think you have to be, you have to trust yourself. You know, we being a female back 20-some years ago, it was definitely different. But you just have to trust yourself and believe that what you're doing is, is correct and that, if hey, if they don't know about you, how are they going to come and, and receive help from you? So I think just believing. Absolutely. And I think even that and kind of going into authenticity, and I know that's something you're just so phenomenal about with that. But how do you f define really living authentically? Oh, how do I define that? It just involves getting up every morning and reminding myself that I've got to be the most credible person in the room. And uh, I think I was actually, last year, I admitted to an audience about half this size that that's not the natural me. Mm -hmm. The natural me was somebody who, because of lots of things, wasn't necessarily the most honest and straightforward person in the world. And I made a commitment at some point in my life that I was going to um, work on changing that. And so, I think authenticity requires vulnerability, and it's really the willingness to be vulnerable. What you learn when you sort of practice vulnerability is that something that's the opposite of what you think will happen happens. Because you think that if people really knew what was going inside, I'll say my head or my, my heart, that I would be rejected from that. But when you're willing to share it, and what you see is that you're not alone. It feels very lonely in there. You feel it's not alone, and instead of getting rejected, what ends up happening is you end up getting embraced and a community starts to form. And really, that's become kind of my way of practicing law. Mm -hmm. That's what a trial is. It's about bringing people together around something that people don't really want to talk about. And if you're willing to show that piece of you that feels ugly and dirty and whatever, you can build a community around that. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but that's 
to me what it means. Yeah, absolutely. And it does go all into, you know, you can't serve your clients unless you're like comfortable with yourself in all degrees. And so oh, I am not comfortable with myself. <laughs> Don't, do, do not. No, it, it's, it's the struggle that comes from not, frankly, being that comfortable. And I don't mean to contradict you. Mm -hmm. I wish I could get to a point where I felt fully comfortable in myself. And then I tell myself, well, maybe I don't really want to get there. But it's, for me, it's a, it's a constant struggle. I think that's a very entrepreneurial thing as well. I probably all of you have experienced that. And all of you handle very unique cases and some draw a lot of attention. Laura, a lot of yours draw a lot of attention. And how would you actually say like an A-list case differs from like a normal divorce case? Not as much as you would think, actually. I mean, if you like lop off some zeros at the end of the bank accounts, it's really, you know, people that are getting divorced, whether they are worrying about who their date is going to be to the Oscars or worrying about who their date is going to be to the company Christmas party, they're sad, they're scared, they're angry, they're really frustrated because the process takes longer than maybe they'd like, they're heartbroken. It's the one kind of law where you're dealing with an opposing party that you will likely see again. You know, it's not like a fender bender or a landlord tenant. You're going to have to live with this person again if you've got kids together or a business you're splitting up. So it's very similar. I'd say the biggest difference is media. Um, in California, where I practice, divorce cases are public. So the minute it's filed with the people's names on it, we've got TMZ and Deadline and Radar calling us. I think one really important thing is being able to balance how to have a good reputation for your firm and the work that you do, while at the same time not kind of benefiting or capitalizing off of somebody else's miserable circumstances. And trying to keep things low profile for your clients um, has something, something that we've become known for. And at the same time, it actually has given us a better reputation as a law firm. Mm -hmm. I love that, yeah. And I think with any entrepreneur, and I think it's even as Joe kind of said, with like, you know, learning to be comfortable or pushing yourself or doing everything. John, what would you say is like, what keeps the fire burning? What keeps pushing you? I don't think anyone on this stage needs to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, so what keeps you motivated? Well, I think, you know, when you represent people who've been hurt and you, you have really tragic and catastrophic injuries, meeting those people makes you want to, you know, come through for them. But if I'm really being honest, because I'm like an arrogant, egotistical son of a bitch, it, winning too. And, and in particular, I like, I like cases that have been turned down by other law firms, especially if they've been turned down by a lot of other law firms. And that's not the only reason I like to take cases like that, but because um, you get to help someone who maybe, maybe the justice system would have failed them but there's ego there too. There's also fear too, because I'm not sure I want to be known as the person that'll take cases that nobody else wants. Well, you are now. <laughs> <laughs> now everyone knows. Can we all send him? Let me give you his cell phone number. If you don't want it, send <laughs> John's your guy. <laughs> so now everyone does know. So. Yeah. And Jan, I would even ask in building your brand, because like you said, you were a very early adopter of marketing and what sacrifices do you feel that you had to make as an entrepreneur, as a female, anything, but what sacrifices did you have to make to really get to where you are? I, I think any business person um, or lawyer has made sacrifices to build their firm and their brand. And I'm not any different than, than any of anybody in this room, but I do wish that females, you know, would be well, honest with each other and that it is difficult. 
Um, I'm, I hope that there's a time in the future where men get asked that question too. Um, but as far as the sacrifices that you know you make as, as a, not being there for certain events, school events, not being able to have drop off or pick up, the sacrifices every working person does. And you just have to have a really supportive home life and family. I've had that, I've been married 29 years, and I think that is so important, and not every woman has that. Yes, thank you. Yes, and Jan, if you don't even mind telling us, I have been in awe of this, of your 2 a.m. stories. Yeah, so Michael, in the podcast, uh, my schedule, he asked me my schedule, and for many years, at least 10 years, my schedule started at 2 a.m. I would get up, uh, prepare for the day. I would have five to six hearings a day, sometimes two hours, three hours away. I would work out. I had a trainer at four. Believe me, I like to find a trainer who would do that. I, I was able to do that, came into my home. And then I would get ready and out the door by six. Travel two, three hours, be, go to court, and then see clients after hearings, get in the car, drive home, hopefully see my kids yep. before they went to bed. A lot of times did not and um, start the day over. And so that was a True quick long overnight time. success story, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of that, Joe, and building your brand, I mean, you're known as America's preeminent trucking attorney. And it's a success story that probably was 20 years <laughs> of the making. But, it, but tell me about the level of work and consistency that that took. Well, it's everything. I mean, consistency, I think, is if you're going to make it happen, it's got to be consistent. I think from a branding perspective, you know, when I started out, the day I decided to become a truck crash lawyer, I had no truck crash cases. Um, it's a long story, but the day I decided to become a truck crash lawyer, I got my first truck crash case, but it was in reverse order. So consistency is important, but if I could say one, one other thing that precedes that, I think the key to this whole thing, and I'm listening to it and seeing it playing out here, I think, is the challenge for all of us is to go find what your passion is. What is it that you want to spend your life doing? And why are you doing this? And I think if it's just money, you're missing the whole point. I mean, money will take care of itself. If you find the passion, I mean, my days end at two o'clock in the morning, so I'm mm-hmm. just on the reverse schedule mm-hmm. of you. But that's what keeps you going, you know? And so there is the consistency piece, but the consistency piece becomes easier if you first lead with passion. And so my challenge to everybody in this room, if you haven't already done it, is get off the hamster wheel that you're on for long enough, ask the tough questions about why the hell are you doing this? What do you want to really do at the end of the day? What do you want to spend your time on? And then follow that. But you know, I I mentor a lot of lawyers and, and, and I sat with one recently for about the sixth time where he said, I want to be a truck crash lawyer. I want to be a truck crash lawyer. I get that a lot. And I'm like, great, I'll help you be a truck crash lawyer, but I don't feel the passion. And then he's sitting there, the, literally six, six time we're, we're meeting, and he, before we start talking about trucking, he starts telling me about mental health. And he starts telling me about this terrible mental health system, and nobody would take care of this client. And you, know, and you can tell where that goes. I mean, I could go on and on. And, he was, and I started smiling, and he literally said, screw you, man, what the hell are you laughing at? I mean, this is, this is serious stuff, man. I mean. And I said, no, I'm not laughing at that. I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I think we found your passion. Mm-hmm. You know, what if you became the first lawyer I know that dedicated your practice to handling cases for mentally, mentally ill people who happen to get injured? 
I mean, I see a law firm full of mental health professional paralegals who don't shun people but understand them. And so anyway, I hope the point's made. I think the consistency is important, but I think the passion piece has got to be there to reach a, a certain level. And if it's not there, it's just about money, it's just about that, it's just not gonna feel right. Right, again, none of this happens overnight and I think yeah. you have to, and it, no one here needs the money anymore, but you love what you but do. But then it's every day. Yeah. Then it's every day, and for me, it's been 20 years doing trucking. I do about 100 talks a year to yeah. industry groups and lawyer groups, and then also try to run a practice. Yeah. So. And in the midst of all of this, and I will even say with all of you in some cases, like you've turned down cases, obviously, because you were like, I'm going to be a trucking attorney, but I have no trucking cases. And so, Laura, what kind of goes through your mind, because it wasn't always this brand that you have, when you are turning those cases away? I know what it's like in the beginning. You need it. Um, I mean, we once filmed like a beef jerky conference um, when we were doing video because we needed the project. But, um, but what's going through your mind as you start turning away those other cases? that we don't do crazy. I mean, I live in LA, there's a lot of crazy, and I'm very lucky that at this point, our firm does not have to do crazy. And you know, you asked before, what's the difference between like the A-listers? The other thing besides the media is a lot of the A-listers are very used to being told yes by people that are getting a percentage of their work, they just want to get them back in front of the cameras or on the field or on the stage. We make the same money as billable rates either way, so we don't say yes. And so if somebody comes in and says, well, I'm the mama and I should have the, my babies, you know, 100% of the time, and, and they don't all have southern accents when they're crazy, <laughs> but this one did. I said, um, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. We're in the state of California, and unless your spouse is doing something really, really harmful to the children, he or she is going to have the kids probably about equal time. Uh, in California, we're really big on having kids exposed to both of their parents. And so, you know, if that person says, well, I, then I don't think we're a good fit. And I said, I think you're right. I am sure you will find somebody that will tell you exactly what you want to hear. You will unlikely, be unlikely to get the results that you want. So it's, it's good for us to be able to say no to the crazy, no to the overindulged, um, that's usually the main thing. And I would just like to go on record to say, I, I still do need the money. I don't know about these guys, <laughs> but I absolutely, I've got kids I have to put through college. <laughs> now, one thing, though, actually to expand on, like the A-list and things like that, that I've heard you say before that I really respect is really like the tough love you give your clients. You are not their friend, and you make that very clear. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, that was hard for me as a young lawyer because... You're with them and they're telling you everything. I mean, I know stuff about some of the people you see in People and Us magazine that would blow your mind. But when you see them six or 12 months after their divorce or their paternity or palimony matter is over, at first I was like, oh, look, it's my buddy so-and-so. And then they're kind of like at the restaurant, across the restaurant, like, I mean, they're nice. They're appreciative for what you've done. But in most instances you represent somebody that was there and witnessed, as you said, Joe, the most vulnerable and difficult time of their life, they don't want to hang out with you. Yeah. And that's actually okay. <laughs> I have a lot of friends. Right, I don't need them. <laughs> now, John, yours is gonna be a little different because you're taking the cases everyone else is turning away. Yeah. <laughs> so let's walk, okay. walk us through that process. <laughs> Well, uh, let, me, let me answer the first question, too. I, I think that is knowing what cases you don't want is incredibly important. First, because if you want to have a reputation for something and you're doing all sorts of other things, you're not going to get that reputation. 
but also because you can't have the career you want and you won't have the time for those cases if you're working on, on other things. I, I, when we started our firm, uh, I think it was like 2005, there was a really prominent lawyer in my community who called me one, I think it was a Sunday, it was definitely a weekend at like 7 a.m. and said, I've got a client who's driving me crazy. His case is worth at least a million dollars and I know you're just starting a firm. I recommend you don't take the case because I'm out. He just called me at 6 a.m. at my house. I didn't give him his, my home number. So I'm telling you right now, you shouldn't take this case, but I know you are go going to, so you can have it. But I thought about that for like a few days, not, not like a minute, but we turned that case down. And I think that, that decision of what you turn down is foundational for who you are. You can't figure out who you are without saying who you're not. But in regard to the question you actually asked me, I think that as lawyers who do contingency fee work, if you see that another firm has turned it down, it's easy to say, well, they've done the work and there's no case here. And it's also easy to say, because we become experts, that within a short period of time, this is almost definitely not a case. But think about that for a second. So if you have a catastrophically injured little girl, even just looking at it financially, that case could be worth tens of millions of dollars and it's almost definitely not a case. Well, how much work are you gonna put into getting people to call you or when you could put the work into making sure whether that's a case or not? And usually you're right, it turns out that it's not. But if it is, it's good business practice, right? Because those cases are worth so much. But also just think about the client that would have not gotten a lawyer and the justice system would have failed them. And, 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 you know, for kids with medical care, unfortunately today, they could die if they don't win their lawsuit. So the way you pick what cases to take when other people want are because it's so, they're so catastrophic if you're a lawyer like me. Right, right. No, that definitely makes sense. And I know, Jan, you drew inspiration even from your aunt um, and where, you know, what practice area you were going to go in and everything. But then also the week you passed the bar, I think kind of dictated uh, what you were going to do, if you don't mind sharing that. <laughs> well, yes, I, um, I went to work for a, another local attorney, a well-respected attorney um, in the criminal field. And he came in and said, I passed, so I passed the bar. Literally the next day he came in and said, um, I'm sorry I didn't tell you this, but I am, um, I'm closing my practice. I'm, I'm leaving for a year. I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be in the building. But here are my clients. Um, keep the building open. I'll be back in a year. So I went from thinking I was going to be nurtured and, and learn and the tricks in the trade and but that wasn't the case, and, and um, within a week, I was uh, arguing in front of the West Virginia Supreme Court. And then I had, I don't know how many trials that year. So it was, uh, you know, an attorney, being an attorney and learning uh, by fire, and it was a crazy time, but I learned so much. It was very stressful and, and scary, but I learned so much, and I had no choice. I had to succeed for my clients right. at that point, and so... That was a, a key point. Yeah, and then how did your aunt play into, you know, where you really niche down? Well, uh, so I'm sitting there, and he had a robust social security practice years ago. And th those attorneys, when he he's left, they left also and took the clients. But I'm getting these calls, so I took, I finally said my one of the paralegals that stayed for free, by the way, because I couldn't pay her, 
um, said, you need to take these cases. I know how to do them. I'll teach you. So I start, first one I did, I re it reminded me of when my aunt, I was uh, 12 years old, and I went to the Social Security office with her, and she had cancer, terminal cancer. And I didn't know at the time. I sat in the waiting room, and I watched her go through the process from afar in the waiting room. She was at the window. And to see her head slump, and, and just she just broke down in tears. And I really didn't realize what happened at that point. But now, looking back on it, she was denied. Um, she was told no. And that's um, when I first case I took, it brought back all those memories and, and that, that heartache and, and what's, what the struggles she went through. And I knew that I didn't want anybody else to ever go through that again. Yeah. Yeah. And then and look what you built today. What, 150 team members? Yes. Yeah. 150. <laughs> so that's, uh, don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> but I'm very proud of them. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And then on all of these journeys, obviously there's a lot of lessons learned, um, some maybe failures, mistakes, things like that. Joe, what was the biggest lesson that you've learned on, you know, this road to growth? Well, I, I don't know if I can sum it up that easily into one thing, but what I've said before about passion, I think is the biggest, the biggest thing. I mean, it's, it's, um, remember when I started doing trucking, nobody was a trucking lawyer. There wasn't a single billboard out there People laughed at me when I said I'm going to niche down into trucking, and they said, there's not enough business, you won't succeed. It takes um, being willing to bear the laughter, being willing to bear the internal voices that say, this is, maybe they're right, maybe this won't work. But there was something about it that made me know that I was doing exactly the right thing. And what I guess one fi final thing I'll say to each of you on the lawyer side, I don't believe in coincidences. The case is in your hands for a reason. And your job is to figure out why you, look around all of these lawyers, you are the one who has that case. It's your case. And when you figure out what that is, why that universe put that case in with you, then the magic happens. Then I mean, people sometimes say, well, you outperform, your verdicts are bigger, your numbers are bigger. And they say, why? And I don't know why. I, sometimes I pinch myself, I'm happy, I'm not complaining about it. But I think the reason is I take a lot of time thinking about why is it me? Why, why am I the one in the case? And then when you go to a jury or whether you go to an adjuster, I say to the adjuster, I don't think it's a coincidence that you're the adjuster in this case. We're in this together. And if it's a jury, then that's what jury selection is about. How do we figure out why are we going to come together and what are we going to come together about in this case? So it's a, lot, it's a lot less about law specifically and a lot more about humanity. Um, and so that's my, you know, those are some of the, some of the lessons. And then uh, remember to be kind along the way. You, do, you don't have to be, the, the, the best lawyers I know are not, they don't assume the fighting position and start just from the place of, I'm going to beat the you-know-what out of you. That is actually fear talking. And when I have that lawyer, and I'm sure that's not a case in the divorce world, right? No, but when you, you know it. I mean, when, if, you're the, if you're that lawyer or if you're confronted with that lawyer, that's usually fear talking. It's not really a position of strength talking. And so if, if, if it's happening to you, then it's time to become introspective and find out why. Where are those fears? And find a more productive way to deal with them than being that person. I love that. So true. And Laura, what is one of the, your biggest lessons that you've learned along your journey? 
I would say remain fluid. I mean, I think one of the reasons I do what I do is I love the human nature of it. I love hearing the stories. I love feeling like we're helping people. I think all of us here that our lawyers have, you know, been the brunt of the lawyer jokes and how we're such scumbags and everything else. Now, be a divorce lawyer, it's even worse. Getting past that and saying, yeah, we're actually helping people. They need our help to get through this process in whatever field we're working in and to stay fluid and not burn out. I'm, I'm on year 29 of this. And when we started the online divorce company, figuring out with divorce.com, we were acquired by earlier this year, ways for people to do it that are simpler, evolving instead of getting stagnant. I think it's really easy for all of us, you know, with the grind to burn out. Find ways that keep it interesting for you. Go, you know, speak at a law school, talk to young female attorneys about how work-life balance, things that keep it interesting for you, come up with a new way of doing what you do, um, particularly since COVID, all of the remote hearings that we've had. There's always ways to grow and change and change your practice and change what it does for you. I think that then helps you better serve your clients and it makes you not only a better attorney, but a better person. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. What lessons have you learned, John? I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, I'm asleep at 2 a.m. I'm not getting up <laughs> or too. going to sleep. So. Well, well, I, I am now. I, am now. Today. I got off the hamster wheel. That's why he has to take cases other people aren't taking. <laughs> and why I still have to do it for the money, oh, yeah, I guess. Right. We have to be up at 2. Yeah. I love sleep, um, but I don't think... I think, I think, you know, this is a boring answer, but I think years can go by when you're in the day-to-day and not thinking about the long-term. You could be working like hell, but not necessarily going in the direction that you should be going. So um, I think that's what I've tried to... If I look back on what were my biggest mistakes, you're saying lessons, but, you know, the things I regret, my biggest regret... Well, first of all, I wish I had spent more time with my kids when they were young, which I can't go back. So um, that if, if, once I said the regret, that popped into my head. But, um, but the other things are not settling a case that I wish I had tried, because I thought even though it was a lot of money and maybe there was a, f- the, a fear of um, financially, if the client wants to try the case, if the fi- client can afford to lose and a big verdict could really change the math, there's a couple of cases I wish I'd gotten verdicts on. Um, but the thing I think I would want to leave you with is always be thinking about the long term and don't let years go by when you're just running, 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 but where are you running to? Yeah, I feel like I'm like thinking about with kids when they say the days are long, but the years are short. Yeah, I love that. My wife says that. That's a great comment. Or said it. Yeah. Yes, and Jan, what has been one of your biggest lessons that you've learned along the way? You know, and I've, I've, every answer here, I've like, oh, yeah, I agree with that, and I agree with that. <laughs> so I want to say there's the biggest lesson. I mean, over every five years, I can say I, I came and found something else to say. But I would say that just the hamster wheel, and I keep hearing that, I agree with that, and I, I got off that hamster wheel on, in 2009 and, and started investing in myself and the team um, and becoming um, better leadership and be able to scale your business. And so uh, what I want to, I've learned so many things over the years, but what I would like is that you guys are here and you're here for a reason. And one of the reasons I'm sure is not only to build your business, but to some, a lot of you to 
how can you clone yourself and to scale. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to these type of events, becoming not only you know crisp but self development, read your books, um, and becoming a better leader um, is, is so important in self-development. I want to give a huge thank you to John, Laura, Joe, and Jan for taking the time to share their wisdom and insights with us at the Game Changer Summit. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with me, Jessica Mogul. If you found this episode valuable, I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with at least one ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit and write us a five-star review on any podcast platform. For more information on these incredible law firm owners and other highlights from this year's Game Changer Summit, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. Attorney.com.